Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Okay, so this week we have our friend, our longtime friend, my gosh, we go way back, uh, Diane Marsh. And um, here, one of the interesting characteristics about this podcast is that everybody has co-authored a book together. <laughs> well, except Diane, not Diane and James, but That's Diane true. and I and James and I have both co-authored books. Yeah. Together. So, um, nice. that's, that we cool. got to get on that, James. That's right. Okay. What are we going to write a book on? I Management. <laughs> <laughs> can't help with that one. No, can't, no, no. I was trying to think of when I first met Diane and it was so long ago. I, I really can't remember it. Wasn't it at one of the events up here in CB? It probably was. <clears throat> a summer event. It was yeah. a summer. It was a summer event that we had. So there, there were very few summer events that I attended. So it was probably... I go everything I gauge on on my son's age because he was ten months old when I came to the first Winter Tech Forum, or when, when what did we call it then? Um, programming the new Roundup. web. No, oh, programming right. the new oh, web. Oh yeah, that was right. that was totally experimental. Did we do more than one of those? I don't remember. We only did one, and then yeah, after that, it became one. the Java Posse Roundup. But that was it. That same summer, Bruce. So that would have been two thousand six when we did um, the the programming the new web. And then I think it might have been that same summer when we did this, the a, a workshop uh, out of that. And then I think James came to that one. Yeah, he might have. Yeah, and then I think why did you come you up and here Barry for that? and I end up on the same team trying to figure out turbo gears or something? Turbo oh, gears, we turbo did. Gears. We yeah, did. yeah, with my friend Mark Graham, who was working yep. at Turbo Gears at the time. Mark Graham, yeah. And then not long after that, we all were together at CodeMash, and I remember Mark being there. I think that was a while later, because, I mean, because okay. Diane, you were one of the creators of CodeMash. Yeah, I was one of the original organizers. Yeah, but that happened years later. Was it years like, later? That was, that was, yeah, it followed on that. It was, I don't know, probably 2006, 2007 timeframe. Same, it's right around that same time. It was a very busy time, I guess. So, yeah, I know we apparently had a lot of energy back then. <laughs> so, um, one of my most memorable uh, things about Diane is that at CodeMash, sometime after that, uh, you did a Scala presentation, and that was my first like intro to Scala. And you taught me, you got me going, got me, got me into Scala, and now it's now it's my jam. So, so that was cool. I always, I always credit you for having taught me Scala. You and Dick, of course. But. Yeah, I think uh, that whole thing started with conversations at the Java Posse Roundup, maybe the year before that and talking about other languages and it was it was probably carl um you know he was always on the forefront of every language you know so he would always jump in and play with all the new technologies all the new toys yeah yeah, yeah. He'd go in full bore um so give us your you know your history tell us oh all the amazing things you've done, which is a long <laughs> list. Uh-huh. Let's see. I was born in a small town. No. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I grew up in Michigan. I, you can still hear it in my voice, I'm sure. Um, I, I, I worked uh, various companies along the way. Um, 
you ran a consulting company for a while. Yeah, until I I ended up uh, backing into running a consulting company, software consulting. You know, it's one of these uh, hamster wheels of like, you have a project, you need more people, you hire people, other projects come in that are bigger, you need to hire more people. And at some point you realize that you're running, um, you're finding really great, interesting work for other people to do and you spend all your time in cookbooks and then you realize that that sucks and, uh, and, and what should you do? And so that was when I, I stepped back and I said, man, I need an infusion of tech in my life. And I, I said, to, I, I had this conversation with Bruce where I said, hey, I'm thinking about writing a book about Scala. What do you think about it? And he just paused for a moment and he said, I'd like to write that book with you. And that was the most amazing experience. I, Bruce, do you even remember that conversation? It was in your living room. I do. I do. Yeah. Yep. yep. And uh, and so that started sort of my journey down the book writing path, which I would have never made it through if not for Bruce, because man, that's a that's a labor of love. Um, it's always harder than anyone thinks it is. It really is. And uh, checked that box. So James, sorry, not going to write a book with you. Um. <laughs> you know that we've been working on Atomic Scala 3. So we've been working on on the new Scala 3 version and uh, with Bill Frazier, who I don't know, you probably have met Bill. I do. There, I but, remember Bill. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's been fun. We Scala 3 is like a totally different language. So we're having fun just learning it right now. That's super cool. Will you get to reuse the very cool book cover that Bruce's friend did for, for it Atomic It is a really Scala. nice cover. Probably. I mean, I just find we usually create a whole new cover every time. It's, ah, it's part of the process. Theme, so the fun. Well, yeah, so first, then after, after the book, um, you know, or, or while I was working on the book, I realized that it, I needed to consider something else. And, and so at the Java Posse Roundup, I was talking to some people in one of our not recorded sessions where I said, gosh, you know, it's hard to leave a company that you've been running for 13 years um, and you have employees and you have customers and you have to figure out how to manage all that. But I'm thinking of trying something new. And a couple of people from that conference reached out to me and we talked about uh, options that I might have and working with them. And and I, that's how I ultimately ended up at Netflix and uh, leading the engineering tools team for five years. Um, Carl Quinn led that team before I did. And he, um, I remember this conversation. I, I got a call from Carl's wife, Tracy, who said, hey, Carl wants to know if you've ever considered moving to California. <laughs> Carl. <laughs> Carl wants to know. And, uh, and, and I said, well, you know, my, I have an open mind about it. You know, I never really thought about it. I really love living in Michigan. And, um, but I, I, I have an open mic because I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And, and so um, we, we should talk. And so we talked and I ended up going out for an interview thinking, it's not a great time. I have to sell a company. You know, uh, it, it's, it's going to be messy. And, but I'll make sure that they know who I am in case something else comes up. Right. So I went out, I met the team. I fell in love with the team and the, prob- and the, the, the problems that they had to solve. And here I am eight years later, but in a different job. So three years ago, I moved from engineering tools to lead the device and content security team, which is a, a product focused security team. Um, and uh, it's, 
I, I loved my old job working in, in tooling where you could be really open with the rest of the world about what you're doing. And we had a lot of open source and a big CI, CD, um, open source project Spinnaker came out of that. And it, it was an amazing, um, it was an amazing ride for five years. But this, this role um, interests me in a different way because I get to be closer to the Netflix product. Um, I get to see, you know, what's going on, changes that we're thinking about making in the product, what sort of security we might need to build in um, to those features. And uh, it's, it's, it's just so much fun. So that's cool. Cause like you, you get to see the stuff on the devices, on the phones, on the TVs, whatever that you help build and and then also to recognize that millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, whatever it is, are are touching something that you had a part in. That's that's kind of feel fulfilling. It yeah. really is. It really is. I th- I remember the first time I worked on a project where I worked on something that was in people's homes. It was the Tonka Toolbox, which is like a, a really really old product, and um, it it was just really rewarding to know that you were working on something that ha- people had in their homes. But now I get to say, wow, you know. If it's if it's in your pocket, if it's on your phone, if it's in your living room, you know, with Netflix, then my team has contributed to that. So that's super fun. I learned from your experience running a consulting firm because I had like a little two-year stint. Much it was a microcosm of what you did, and I ended up kind of with the same experience. Um, I mean, it was fine working with everybody, but. Um, there was no reason that the firm really didn't bring anything to the, um, to the two guys that were working for it other than it was taking a cut of their money. And when they needed more money, I thought, you know, you should just keep it all. And I think it's worked out better that way. So, you know, and I think back on all the projects we did at SRT over the many years, I think the one that I feel the most connected to is the um, computer, what do they call it? Like it was a computer aided survey for substance abuse and it was, a, it was an interactive program. And the idea was through the University of Michigan Substance Abuse Research Center was to be able to um, to take clinical work into people's homes and, and be able to scale that out to communities that don't have, you know, hospitals or staff that can help people. And that's the part that, uh, that was the one project of like, I think all of the thir- 13 years of work in that company that I felt the most uh, fulfilled by, I guess. It was meaningful. You were actually making a serious impact. Yeah, it, and it you know it was interactive. It was um, it, it was interesting. And anyways, I, sorry to all the people who might be listening to this whose projects I worked on otherwise, but that that was the one that I loved. Yeah, it's just so directly connected to making people's lives better. So we wanted to ask you your because you've tried to bring more women into technology and maybe, you know, mitigate some of the impacts that there are on women in technology. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, it's a weird field and you've, you survived through all of your whole, I mean, you went to, you got a master's degree, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you, you know, you were in school, you did all these things and you've had to, I guess, cope with this unconscious male, well, usually white male dominated field and all of the messy issues that come along with it. Um, I don't know. You've, yeah, you've made it this far. Tell us about, yeah, like, like what your experience has been and, and then how you've tried to make it better for others too. Yeah. So I guess, you know, it's interesting because I graduated with my bachelor's degree in 86 and I didn't know until many, many years later, that that was the, really the heyday of women getting degrees in computer science. It was it was the peak, was that mid-80s timeframe. And I think about 35% or something of degrees in computer science were going to women at that time. And then, um, I don't know, probably in the, um, in the 2000s, I kind of I don't know, something woke up, woke up in me. And I, I realized that I, I read something or, or I learned something. And I saw that only about 12% of women were getting degrees in computer science in the, in the early 2000s and, or the, the mid to late 2000s. And, and I was like, wait, we're back to the 1970s level. What happened? And people would ask me, like, what happened? And I'm like, I don't know. You might have to ask somebody who didn't choose this field because, you know, I don't I don't know what to tell you. But um, so I don't really have any words of wisdom. There are lots of podcasts and lots of conjecture around around that. But for me, that was sort of a formative moment where I thought maybe I should do something to kind of get women more engaged to figure out how to um harness the energy of women that are in the field today or that have left the field or that might consider going into the field. And so um, one of the things I did, uh, it was I I started reaching out, try to figure out how to reach out to people who had left the field. And uh, my, my most amusing story is that I was running a 5k and I use running in a very um, generous way because I was following this woman who was pushing a kid in a, a baby uh, jogger, right? And, and like, I wasn't going any faster than she was. I might be embarrassed to admit. But um, but I guess I must have passed her at some point because she said, I had a, a, a tech t-shirt on and she said, um, is that is that a software conference? I think it was probably Codemash. And, uh, and I said, yeah. And so we started talking and my husband's like, oh, only you would start a conversation in the middle of a 5K. And anyways, I found out that she had left the field. And, um, that she was, she had, she had spent five years, you know, with, with new kids at home and she was trying to figure out how to get back in. And I, at the end of the the race, it was really a fun run. I, I gave her my card and I said, we should talk, like call me. Right. And a year later, I still hadn't heard from her. So I, I knew where she, her kids went to school because she went to school. They went to school with my kids. And uh, I went to you one of the teachers. Stalking her. I stalked her. I stalked <laughs> women in tech. I, I went to the teacher who I, uh, uh, my kid's teacher, and I said, do you know this woman? And she said, yeah, she's my best volunteer. I said, I bet she is. Um, <laughs> but tell her to call me. I've been hoping to talk to her. Anyway, she did call me and we ended up hiring her. But it turned out that she had spent that, la- that time frame, that year, building skills um, to the point where she would feel comfortable 
having that conversation with me, building Android applications, for example, right? So that she would feel comfortable having that conversation. I would have hired her a year ago, to be clear. But, you know, it occurred to me that sometimes women come, feel this need to get really, really prepared to have this conversation. And anyway, so I, I thought that was my my funniest story about hiring a woman in tech. Yeah, um, like need to feel like they have to be way more prepared than a man might just to justify, I don't know, their existence. Yeah, I talked to another woman who said that um, she she was at Microsoft and um, some of her peers during, you know, a, a, a stock heyday had kind of semi-early retired, right? And when they decided to come back into the field five years later, nobody asked them, what have you been doing to stay current with technology? Um, you know, it, it's not the same conversation as when a, a, a woman might take time off or, or even I, I don't know what happens to dads who take time off with their kids. But, you know, if you take five years out of your life, um, you know, people really do like, how did you stay up with technology? Um, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that happens. Have you seen a shift? in in the interview practices to try to remove some of that bias or what is anything gotten better or changed there yet i don't know i mean i i wouldn't have asked those those questions in that way so i, I you know I, I i don't know if that what impact um i don't know what impact that's had um uh, i'll tell you though bruce one of the other things that really impacted me was um was meeting Nancy Nicolaisen at your at one of your summer events, and it was right after I had my second kid. And she was walking with me, and she said, "You know," she said, "I think a lot of people feel like they have to learn everything that happened while they were off having kids, and in my case, it was like less than a year, right?" And she said, "This industry moves really fast, and people find that intimidating, but I think, you know, your fundamentals are strong. Just jump to the forefront of technology. Start there." Your male counterparts have, haven't been keeping up either. So just jump in. And that was hugely powerful to me. And, and really, um, I try to take that into other women who may have taken time off to have kids or, or whatever, because I think that, that you can really feel like I've already been left behind. It's too late. And, and I think that's really empowering. Yeah, I think it's really easy to get into that mindset. Um I mean, for anyone on anything, you know, just this, and I, I feel like maybe our education industry contributes to that because they want you to think, oh, well, you need to, well, you remember, you remember our friend Richard Hale Shaw, right? You know, yeah, yeah Richard, he had studied music and he, he had been a professional musician. He never finished college and that just bothered him and yet he was out here teaching C++ to people with you know advanced degrees he was you know and and it's like no it doesn't matter but it because i think of that you know you have to have the imprimatur of a degree in something and that really means something that it prevents a lot of people from even considering it but even when they have the degree, then if they take time off, I think especially that dynamic where we just talked about where women who take time off are, are asked, like, what have you done to keep current with technology? Like they, they lose the confidence of that degree and imposter syndrome just spikes 
right? Of like, oh, I should have been spending, you know, now I need to spend like this woman that I mentioned a year, you know, getting, building my skills up in order to feel like I can re-enter this field. Yeah. And I've been noticing recently, I mean, I've seen this before, we've all seen it, just the inability to say when you don't know something. Like you might be in a conversation with somebody or somebody might be asking you questions. And I've noticed that sometimes I'll ask a question and if somebody doesn't know the answer, they'll simply avoid the question altogether. And I'm going, wait, did you miss the question or, or where did this go? And, and it's, and I think it just, maybe it just feels so good. Maybe it's just what we're about is like, oh, knowing the answer. And if I don't know the answer, it's going to feel really bad. And so I don't want to. And yet, at least from my standpoint, if I don't know, if I think you know the answer because you've known the answer for all these other things and you just skip this, it's very frustrating. And if I knew that you didn't know the answer, then I could move on. But now I'm blocked. Yeah, did you not hear me? You know, one thing you really model well, Bruce, is you'll ask any question. What I've seen you do is um, some people, the opposite side of what you just said is some people won't ask the question that they feel might be stupid or people might think that that it's obvious. And, um, And what I've seen, the behavior I've seen you model, Bruce, is that you're comfortable asking any question. And I really, really appreciate that in you. And that that was learned consciously from realizing that when I didn't stop and say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, the rest of the conversation was pointless. And yet, if you say, well, you know, it's what we were talking about, you know, show vulnerability and say, oh, I don't know the answer to that, then the conversation becomes super valuable to you because people really like to explain things to you. Well, so. and not only that, but usually you find that nobody else in the room um, knew it either. And so you're actually doing a service for everyone. And I think because people look up to you and your knowledge in software um, and particularly in Java, um, you showing that vulnerability is a really great model. It says it's okay to ask this question. Even Bruce didn't know. I know you're going to be embarrassed by that, but I, I do think that people feel that way. Right, James? You know, yeah, for sure. So. I've been getting a lot of feedback about my post, my um, blog post on Gradle. I mean, even just this week, I had two people tell me, yeah, I can't figure it out either. And I feel like for the longest time, there were a lot of people who are going, no, it's, it's not that bad or it's not that hard or whatever. But <clears throat> now I'm actually hearing from people who, who are saying, yeah, we we have no idea, you know, we just thrash our way through until we can get something working, but we don't actually know what's going on. Yeah. It's like that I vulnerability, a, like that vulnerability helps others be vulnerable as well. It opens up a space for it. When I was in grad school, I had a friend model this in an advanced math class, which was just remarkable to me because um, he, he, well, what was amazing was he treated the professor's time as he was just there to explain things to Dave. And so if Dave <laughs> didn't understand something, he was just going to ask questions during class until he understood it. And at first I was kind of shocked. You're using up all of our class time. But then I began realizing that everybody in the class was going, wow, 
I'm actually starting to understand this because Dave is asking these questions. And he was just, he was shameless. And so after that, I just go, oh, it's actually possible to understand the thing during the class. That's so efficient. Well, and, you know, I guess to the other point, probably other people in the class didn't understand it either. And so he was actually highlighting this and making it a better experience for everyone else in the room. He did. It was amazing to watch, you know, because you could see everybody in the class going, that's the question I didn't, you know, I didn't understand any of this until Dave started asking these questions. I was like, wow. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think as a manager, you were you were um, you were talking about vulnerability briefly there, Bruce and, and James too. And I think as a manager, the best thing you can do for your team is to model that vulnerability, because otherwise um, you, you don't build that trust in your team. The, the team uh, won't necessarily be okay. They'll feel imposter syndrome and not share that with you. Um, I think imposter syndrome is something that maybe everybody who knows what they don't know experiences, right? And so um, it, it's really, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't experience imposter syndrome. And if, if they don't, I might be suspect that they have a little too high of view of themselves because man, it's um, there's just so much to learn and know in this world. Ooh, I just thought of a good presentation. What em- is it? Embracing imposter syndrome. You know, instead of instead of going, oh, no, I feel imposter syndrome, just go, yep, I don't know that (laughs) because who in this field can know any portion of it, you know, and and so like, why are we going around pretending that we do when it's impossible? And when you explain things to other people, Mm -hmm. you learn them better yourself, too. And, and so I think that it, it actually does a really good service to everyone to that, you know, people are really pushing on that, like figure out what those boundaries are, figure out what those, um, the overall concept can be easy to understand. It's always the little edges that are tough, right? That, that and that's where the interesting parts are. It is. Yes. I've been listening to books in the morning when I, when I walk and, uh, I was, I just finished, um, uh, the code breaker it's about um uh uh world war ii one no it's it's about it's about um the human genome the work on mrna and like how how we get to where we are today the the code of life um uh jennifer jennifer doudna is mm-hmm. that i think that's right and um and she talks about um how her dad you know would ask her questions when he was looking at her research and he would ask her questions like, why is that important? Why is that important? And it would continue to refine her understanding as she explained to him, like why it was important. And so anyways, that's my new favorite word. I have had that experience recently as well. When, when it's like, you're looking at things and you go, well, what, what problem are we trying to solve? What is motivating this thing? And it makes it, you know, it gets to the fundamentals. And there's a practice, what's it called? The three whys or something. Five whys. Five yeah. whys. Yeah, you have to keep asking why, 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 why. You know, like like a little kid. We've been through this with uh, Bruce around monads uh, many, many times. <laughs> it's like Bruce, Bruce with that vulnerability will say, wait, what is a monad again? And then I try to explain it and realize I don't really understand what a monad is. And then we get to 
get together, get to a deeper level of understanding. And then he asks, wait, what is a monad again? What problem is it solving? And just go, we've just been on this spiral of understanding, but I think we're both actually getting get to closer. deeper levels of understanding. Of and since both James and Bill is about to have a small child, we're thinking of changing the model for a monad from a burrito to a diaper. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Although both are pointless. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're both bad abstractions. It doesn't tell you anything about the monad. So, but that, that too is an insight. Um, We had, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about your experiences with um, nonviolent communication. And I thought there was a topic we wanted to, to cover. Yeah, I thought the, um, so, uh, one of the the things that I talked to you about, Bruce, was um, had I, I, I remembered you had done a lot of these classes in um, in Big Sur. What was the what was the name oh, of that? Aslan. Yeah, Aslan. And uh, and I I thought that you had told me that you worked on some nonviolent communication there, and um, I was curious about how that would work in a in a technical setting and. So I this brought was, this was years ago. Yeah. Years ago, years ago, but probably about mm, not quite five years ago now. I brought in the 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 guy that you had worked with. Um, I apologize, I can't remember his name. So if you do, pop it in. Uh, but uh, to to talk at Netflix about nonviolent communication and Netflix is all about feedback and you know making sure people are direct with one another. And there was some concern initially about like. What is this nonviolent communication? Are we all just going to be singing kumbaya and not and not really addressing the deep problems? But it's actually a way to address the deep problems and build trust, um, not by shying away from the conversation, but be making sure that you're mindful of the other person um, that you're talking to and and what they bring into the room. And it was a it was really impactful for for my team. I did it with my team in, in two separate sessions and. The moderator said that he thought one of the reasons why it was really successful was that I showed vulnerability with that group. And um, and then when once the leader shows vulnerability, the other people in the team can show vulnerability as well. Um, and, and it does build that trust. And I, I've been interested to bring this. To, so I, when I switched roles about three years ago, I thought about doing this with my team, but I felt like I didn't have you know, I, we hadn't built up that trust yet. Right. I, and I didn't know how that would work. Would it be, um, should I wait until we knew each other a little bit more so that they wouldn't be, um, totally freaked out by, by me, you know, going all vulnerable with them. Um, but, uh, and, and I actually did talk to the moderator at the time too, and he, he sort of agreed that he thought that it would be good just to wait a little bit. Now, of course we've got COVID. And so, but I, you reminded me about this and I think I'd like to do that when, um, when we get back to some semblance of normalcy around, uh, around that. So what's an interesting way of... to talk through, it's an interesting way to talk through problems about like understanding what people's basic needs are. And, you know, what, what, uh, what are they bringing into the conversation and, you know, what's going unsaid that's actually contributing to the, um, to the sentiment in the room that can often be negative and not anything that you said, actually. And how can you, how can you 
tamp that down so you can stay in the moment. Is there an example of how this kind of plays out with developers? Will developers say like, uh, when you do a code review, I feel, or, you know, like, like how does this actually, did you see like it actually change how people would talk about their experience with each other? Yeah, you, you could talk, you could. So one of the exercises was to look at a, a problem that you're currently having or that you've had before and talk through how, um, how other people are feeling about that, how, how you, you anticipate other people are feeling about that. What, what other emotion you're bringing in and work that out before you get in the room. Like, so that I don't bring in a lot of baggage with me from other scenarios. And so it, it um, so I, I don't think we really talked about it with respect to code review, but we did talk about it with respect to a, a thorny problem that was kind of abutting two teams and how those teams had to work together cross-functionally so that they were, um, the one team wasn't feeling like the other team was not recognizing their expertise, for example, mm-hmm. that everybody was being respectful of that. Um, and that that was the basic human need about needing to feel respected, right. And needing to feel that you're being heard. Um, so, yeah. I find it fascinating because I've sort of been accidentally introducing it around town here and I see the impact that it has on people as they take it up and then they'll come back and say something. Well, just like the phrasing and everything that you used just now. And I go, yeah, they're getting it. They understand what's going on here. Even if it's only a portion of it, it changes the way people kind of look at the world. And because I think it almost immediately generates success improvements in your interactions with people but it's a muscle and i'm glad you reminded me of it because i think that if you don't use it you 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 lose that um you that fall type. back into yeah. your early old patterns, patterns. Yep, yeah yeah exactly. and so i think it's it's i'm really glad that you brought that up because it's something that I, I think i need to go back and look at bring a little peace into my life that seems like it's something that could benefit all technical teams, maybe all teams, but but it's there's there's so much when we're interacting and building something together. There's so much that just goes unspoken about what our needs are, underlying needs are. Um, that it'd be really good to help bring awareness to those things. There's a little story that I heard that I think makes a good example for non, you know, for explaining how things, well, in particular, the idea of vulnerability is like, so you're sitting down to breakfast and you've just poured the milk onto your cereal and somebody calls you and they say, we have this problem. We need, and you go, you're sitting here looking at your cereals, it's getting soggy. And you go, can't you just solve it yourself? You hang up and, you know, they're going away going, oh man, you know, I don't feel good about that interaction. And instead you can say exactly what's happening. You go, oh man, I just poured the milk on my cereal. And it's like, it makes you look like a normal human. And it's like, you're, you're worried about your cereal and stuff like that. But they come away going, oh yeah, they're dealing with their cereal. And you go, can I call you back or, or whatever? And then it's no, you know, you haven't like hurt anybody's feelings or surprised anybody or whatever you've just explained 
here's what's happening with me right now. That's why I always have coffee before I talk to anybody in the morning. I tell the kids, like, I got to put my oxygen mask on before I can help anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Don't talk to me right now. (laughs) So, but yeah, you're right. What, because you've, you've attempted, I think, several times to kind of improve the environment for women in technology. And I would also point to the Python community, which I think has the highest percentage of, of women. I mean, certainly if you go to the conference, you just go, wow, I didn't know there was this many women in technology because it's, you know, we're getting, I mean, Guido's idea is like, we should have 50% uh, women at the conference, that that kind of turnout. And it's it's been pretty high. So, um, and I think a lot of that is because Python is always because of Guido's leadership and then all the people that he kind of coaches and brings in and their leadership and everything. And it's like, it is a surprisingly friendly place. And there's a lot of support for not just women, but anybody coming in and not making people feel stupid and all that kind of stuff. And how do we, like, how do we propagate that? You know, Bill Venner's called me, I don't know, it was like a year ago, and he's going, how does the Python community do this? You know, (laughs) it's like, well, from the beginning, that's how they did it. Because he's trying to figure out how to make the Scala community more friendly. (laughs) Yeah, so it's interesting. I, um... When, when I had SRT, I had, I think we had about 30% women, which was pretty, is pretty incredible in the computer software industry. Right. And, and one of my competitors was, I was friendly with him uh, and he ended ultimately ended up buying the company, but he said, I don't understand how you have so many women on your team. I don't even get that many resumes. And, uh, and I, I think that don't underestimate the power of a visible female leader, because, um, you know, it's, it's not that you, you parade women out in front to, to have other women join. It's that other women look and they say, wow, this might be a great place for, for me. This, this place might look like me. This place might respect me. And, um, and I, and I think being able to bridge that gap, that's the goal, right? Is like figure out how to make, people feel that this is a welcoming community. And I mean, my, uh, my team now in a security team, I'm, I have more than 20% women. And, uh, and, and like, you know, I, I don't, I, I mean, yes, that's hard. It's hard work. It's hard work building a diverse pipeline. It's hard work making sure that you're reaching out to people who are getting reached out to from everybody else in the industry, probably. Right. Um, but when it comes down to it, people will choose whether they want to work with you or not. And you need to make sure that you present what you want them, an environment that they want to work in. I would put it more extremely and say, you create something like that. And a woman looks at it and says, that might not suck. And I was, I was talking to someone who actually, I think you might've been responsible for her to co- coming to the winter tech forum in the first place, but they were coming through Crested Butte. So we had, um, we went and had some food together and she was talking about uh, 
being frustrated by her job and it was a lot of it was just I think the unconscious male biases and everything and she was you know very frustrated by this and and saying yeah I think I want a different job somewhere else because she was just fed up with it and I mean it's really too bad when you have to look for the places that might not be terrible rather than looking for something that would be awesome yeah, it was interesting. There was a, 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 I saw a Twitter thread a couple of months ago and where people were saying, you know, women were saying, in my 10 years in the industry, I've never worked for, you know, I've never reported to a, a, a woman leader. And, and I wrote back and I said, in my 35 years in this industry, I've never reported to a female leader, but my team can't say the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and like that, that means that I feel like, we've made a difference. Like we had, uh, I, I may never report to a female leader in my career, right? It, it might not happen, but I, we can stop it here, right? And we can figure out how, how, how this transpires from here on. Frankly, guys, every woman has a story. Every woman has a story about being treated like crap in tech. My stories aren't nearly as bad as many other stories, but they're formative. And, um, and it's like, I I don't feel like I ever had that overt toxic masculinity, you know, focused on, on me. Part of that might be that I, I prefer to be oblivious to some of it. Um, that might not work for everyone. Uh, it might not work in the long run. It certainly doesn't work in the long run, but, um, you know, I, I feel like there, there are definitely things that, that have happened in my life in my in this field that could have chased me away and, and I I didn't go um because I love what I do. The last couple of winter tech forums we have um had a session called and I don't think you've been here for these um because so we had this session called uh women's experience in technology and I can't remember how we, anyway, we came up with this rule, which is that men could only ask questions. I think Bill came up with this idea. And so we were both sitting in there and, and you could, we could see each other wanting to make a statement and then go, oh, wait, that's not a question. And it was really amazing when, when you have that structure to say, okay, women can talk about things, men can only ask questions, that it really brings out a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of difficult um, things that came out during that. And you and we and yeah, oh, but it was really valuable. And that would be like, I don't know if that's a kind of a session that could be um, done in a company or, or, you know, as, as, I, I don't know where else it could be used, but it was really an amazing experience both times. And in part because it's not often that white men are in a in a inferior position, and so to be put in to be like forced into this position where it's like I can't fix things, and that's what I do. That's how I feel value. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this feels uncomfortable, and then to realize that non-white men often feel that way just in regular life you're like oh man 
It's a good perspective. Yeah, I think I think you're wise to think about this as going beyond women. Um, w- one of the interesting things that I've noticed is that um, many companies in the Bay Area are above 20% representation of women. And 20% is about the pipeline, right? Like it's the pipeline that's coming out of universities. It's a pipeline that's out there in industry. And so I'm not saying we should stop doing hard work, but I'm saying that there are other categories of underrepresented people who we are not focusing on. And I, I was one of my morning walk books was um, this book called Cast. And I, I think this is where I learned this, that the advances that white women have made in the past many years have been um, to the detriment of people of color, specifically black women. And that, you know, while there's a lot of focus on women in tech, it's on white women in tech. And our percentage of, um, of people of color in our in, in Silicon Valley companies and in companies across the country, with, with some exceptions regionally, is well below the pipeline that comes out of universities with these degrees. So where are these people going? Why are they not being hired? This is the what we really need to address. And so what I've what I feel comfortable doing sometimes is shifting away from like women in tech because this is the this is the group that I'm in. Um, and, and it feels more comfortable for me and I think also more meaningful for me to shift some of those conversations to what are we doing for people of color? How are we making sure that we represent them? And that we attract them, and like that's likely quite a different conversation than 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 women in tech. It might have some of the same stories and some of the same threads, but I think that that's we, we need to stop focusing on one single dimension and figuring out how to bring a broader voice to the companies that we all work in. Yeah, it's a general problem. It isn't just women, white women, et cetera. It's, it's that mindset, uh, which is really hard to get a grasp on. What is exactly that mindset? Because I think it's very subtle. We learn it uh, growing up. I mean, I can think of some of the things that I did. Like, I, re- I still remember telling my sister, you know, I was young. She wanted to do something. And I said, well, you can't do that. You're a girl. And, you know, totally unconscious just echoing the the environment that I had been raised in. Fortunately, my dad was super supportive of my sister wanting doing whatever she wanted. But uh, but I, you know, that was just what the boys in the schoolyard would say is like, oh, well, there are limits to what you can do. And you think about that now and realize, wow, that would have an impact on somebody that they could, they might, you know, that one statement from one person that they carry around the rest of their life. Yeah. I think, you know, as a parent, my responsibility is to my son to make sure that he sees value in all people and that he doesn't separate out what girls can do, what boys can do. Um, And, and I think that uh, it's, it's a lot of responsibility, but we can't, we can't solve it from, you know, from, from where we are today, we need, we can prove things, but we really need to start at the root with our kids. And, um, 
as I've often said about women in tech is that, you know, if women in tech are 20% of the industry and we're the only ones talking about improving the scenario, the hiring scenario, the, the workplace scenario for women in tech, we're losing 80% of the, of the microphone that we could have. And so, you know, we need enlightened men to have this conversation too. And, and then, you know, I mean, I think I say women and I, I don't mean to be exclusive of people who, um, who don't feel that they are represented by a binary group um, because it's a, it's a shorthand for me and I need to get better about that. Right. And I need to make sure that I do speak more um, inclusively around and think more inclusively around. It's not just women. There are lots of underrepresented genders that are also feeling um, pressures uh, and, and different pressures than what what I felt. So one it's a big th- problem, eh? <laughs> oh my gosh, it is a big problem. I have to say, one of the things that I'm very happy with is how the the Winter Tech Forum has been apparently a kind of safe space for some people to come and to express themselves and talk about who they are. And starting with our, starting with our bathroom plan, right? Like we don't need to have men and women bathrooms, just, you know, close the door. Right. (laughs) Well, and I think you have been, uh, you know, helpful in that certainly instrumental or whatever, because you would encourage people to come who might feel otherwise, you know, like, oh, this is just another tech conference. I don't want to go. Not for me. And then realizing that, oh no, it's a, it's a community. It's a, it's about connection, which I didn't get. I thought it was a tech conference for the longest time. And I was confused when people were doing all these other things that weren't tech. And I was going, wait, what's going on here? And then finally I realized, oh man, we've accidentally created something that's way better than just a tech conference. Yeah, the the secret sauce of the of the conference is really the connections between those people that extend year to year to year, and that where when people are deciding to change jobs, they feel a safe space to talk in that group. Those are their peers that they're going to go to, and they're going to ask for their advice. And um, and whether it, it's not transactional, right? I, I think a lot of people think I'm going to go to a conference, I'm going to hire people, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to have some hires, and like that's that's quite transactional, and I don't think that that works. Um, and so I, I think the approach that we've taken with the Winter Tech Forum and the Java Posse Roundup before it, and the STFU coming up, which I think you'll mention, is. Um, not only great acronyms, but also that uh, this this idea of building these relationships where it's 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 deeper. Mm-hmm. Y- yeah, you know, people will work with each other they, because they would love the opportunity to work with these people that they spend a week with once a year and they spend time conversing with throughout the year periodically. Right? They would love to work with these people, and they also have insight into what's going on in their lives and what what's meaningful for them and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are and what will work for them and I think that that's fueled a lot of um, interplay between the the people that work uh, or that come to the conference and then end up working together later mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and hopefully m- much better um, uh, fit for uh, because yeah. you understand the things that end up being really important to somebody. 
Um, I actually, since you brought it up, let me just uh, let me just point out that the uh, yes, the Summer Tech Forum Unconference (STFU) is um, August fifteenth through the twenty-first, and there's nothing up yet. I just figured it's out the dates. Going to be in Crested Butte. Yes, it will. We will do. What masks and social distancing outside well, sessions or something? By then, we can ask for uh, vaccinations because it seems like a lot of people are getting vaccinated, and it seems reasonable that we could do that. Um, Bring your vaccine passport. <laughs> Summer in Crested Butte is so beautiful, is. and uh, and you've I, only I, been I, a couple of times with mountain biking. Yeah. In the summer, right? Oh, that's where you messed up your shoulder at Doctor's Park. That's where Park I separated my shoulder. Oh. Talk about deep, deep personal connections. Not only did I go mountain biking with James and separate my shoulder, but then he took me to the clinic where his wife was a doctor, and she fixed me up and uh, and sent me on my merry way. It was uh, a formative experience. Yeah, so. learning learning how not to push too hard. <laughs> actually it was just a fluke you know it was a downhill and i was going too fast so mm -hmm. and i just hit hit a berm stuff happens but oh well it's uh it was a beautiful beautiful ride and when they call something dr park maybe you should think about it twice before you go <laughs> yeah. there just yeah, I, oh, I just realized that. <laughs> uh, huh. Anyhow. hey i wanted to bring up this concept of additive hiring because i think that there's this misconception in the um in, in the industry or or I, I wonder if there's confusion that additive hiring equals diversity hiring and uh, diversity hiring is its own thing like you know however you feel about diversity hiring i think that you know we already talked about the the goal of bringing um a wider set of voices to the um, in, into the conversation into your company, but additive hiring is is is, a, is even a different layer on top of that, which is it doesn't necessarily have to reflect um, bringing in uh, people who don't look like you. It's people who don't think like you too, and and so the idea is, what are those um, must haves that you've listed on your um, on your job description, how do you think about those? And is there something that's missing in your team? And so, um, by missing, you mean what? What's a missing skill in your team that you should be considering? Um, and and how? So, as would an that... example of this, would be like I I've experienced great vulnerability in teams. This is not a technical skill. There yeah. certainly are technical ones to you, but but maybe we can hire people that will help bring in more vulnerability to our team. That's a great one. And and I can tell you, like I was a, I was a, uh, a recipient of additive hiring before we called it that at Netflix, because when I was in engineering tools, you know, I, I was working on a platform team. I was, I was um, working in an area that was fairly unrelated to security. Right. You know, we didn't, we worked with a security team, but we didn't do that. And I didn't know anything about device security. I didn't know anything about content security. Um, I had been a sysadmin in college. So I had some, like some basis of, of this, but not any formal training. And um, the hiring manager at the time said, I need collaboration skills in this team. We don't, we don't have a great, um, 
a, a great leader that that is really great at collaborating across teams. And and fundamentally, this team is cross-functional with our partner engagement team, with our business development team, with our edge teams, with you know, with many different teams at Netflix. And I need somebody who's really great at collaboration that can build that security expertise. And so um, so where, you know, the typical hire for that role would be to look at, you know, somebody who brought 10 years of experience in the device or content security space. He said, she can build that. What she can't build, what, what the leader can't really build is these collaboration skills. So I'm going to hire for collaboration skills and I'm going to, you know, set the expectation that she's going to build these security skills. It's such okay. a cool framing because I... I, what I hear from a lot of white males are, oh, we hire, we hire the best. We, you know, we, we just, All that's who we're after. Is. Like we, we are after the best engineers, whatever. And so if, if I were to have that mindset, who would the best engineer be? Well, uh, he'd be really great at Scala development. He would um, look a little bit like me. He would uh, send pull requests and have open source contributions just like me. And, you know, it'd all just be just like just me. Just like me. Yeah. Yeah. And so to, to, to have a frame that is additive. What what am I not good at? What am I not bringing that can help round out and bring more balance to the team and collaboration, vulnerability, all sorts of things that I don't have? But to think about it not in the frame of just another me, but what does this team actually need beyond me? And I have great security leaders with 30 plus years of experience in the field, right, reporting to me. So I have the security expertise on my team. What that team didn't have was somebody who could cross those boundaries, right? And so, um, I, I love that story because I feel like it 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 definitely moves it from the conversation around like we hire for the best to what is the best? What's the best for this team? What's this team need right now? What's missing? What limits their success? Let's hire for that, and let's let's set expectations that the other things need to be either grown or hired and complemented in the team. So just to be clear, what would be the definition of additive hiring? What are those skills that add to your team? The skills the um, th that you feel would be necessary for that team's success that you're not getting today. So that... And so thinking differently about that job description, thinking differently about those skills. Don't just go to the, um, the first... Uh, answer in the book, which is hire somebody like the previous leader or hire somebody with a textbook experience that they need or, or that we've always hired for. Mm -hmm. What's so, missing? What limits their success? Well, that's interesting because that requires a lot more uh, kind of introspection. You know, you're, you're going, well, here's what we have. And when you're actually looking for what don't we have, yeah. that requires a bigger you know you really that's hard yeah that's i don't want to that's admit the what job. i'm at and what's well, or how do you me. even know what you don't have yeah so what causes you work. pain right like let's sit back and say like where have we not been successful what's contributed to that what's caused us pain now there are like all kinds of um scholarly articles that i'm sure could give you much more um more context on this than I can provide. Um, you know, I just, I wanted to bring in my personal experience because 
um, being vulnerable and, and telling you that I was not hired for my security skills into this role. Um, it, it, I think that it, it's important for people to see where, you know, this was an important thing to the person that was hiring me. And, um, and he saw it as a gap in, in that, in that team moving forward. He so it's not just about hiring you because you're a woman. He didn't hire me because I was a woman. He hired me because of those collaboration skills. Um, and he got, uh, he, he, he got a more diverse, uh, representation on his leadership team in, in return as well. Yeah, that's cool. That's a, that's a really great way to look at it. I think maybe some of the root problems that we, that we have come from like the scientific management kind of factory orientation of how management typically thinks about things is like, like, Oh, I need, uh, I've got James, he cranks out code and I need another James because this is just an assembly line and just add more Jameses and we're going to be good. We're going to be able to crank out more, more widgets. It's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to do that work. Like to Bruce's point to know what you don't have. It's hard. Um, but well, it's, it's also hard not to be of scientific management in a way. Yeah. Uh, it, it does move you out of the widgets for sure. I don't have you ever encountered um Esther Derby? Have you ever Yes. Okay, you do cuz I find that she's really good at um the actual practice of like figuring out what's missing and um you know doing these things. I, I saw her do a retrospective for the first time and it was like Oh, you don't just go, well, that's done. I'll, off we go to the next one. You actually go back and look at what was working and what wasn't. And it was, it was pretty eye-opening for me. Yeah, it's fun stuff. And I think also, you know, one of the benefit of hiring people that don't look like you is that they've had different experiences. You know, I, frankly, like I'm where I am today because I figured out how to adapt to this predominantly male field. Right. I mean, it's 35 years in the making of plus college, right, of figuring out how to adapt into this into this this role. Um, and and so we're adaptive human beings. The people who this is going to maybe sound um, judgmental, but I think if, if you don't ever have to adapt, maybe you didn't have to grow as much. Right. Like if you if in the in the dominant class. You know, maybe you didn't have to adapt as much. Oh, yeah. I realize. I, I mean, you know, I'm slowly becoming aware of things that I'm totally comfortable with because there's no pressure. There's no difficulty or judgments happening on me. And so it's like, oh, this seems easy. What's Why, why does everybody have a problem with this? I was like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a you know, white male in, in this field. And so... It seems very easy to me. Yeah, so going back to James's point around, you know, sometimes uh, men just white men just want to like figure out how to solve the problem. My husband and I were talking through something the other day, and he's like, "Why don't you just do blah 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 blah?" And I I, I paused, and I looked at him, and I said, "You do know that as a woman, I can't do that, right? Like, I wouldn't get away with that. You could maybe get away with that, but I, could, well, you should be able to. Yes." I should. Yes. But 35 years of experience tells me I cannot. 
So I have to find another way. <laughs> so, yeah. Even the people that you love don't necessarily see, you know, like that, that challenge, right? Cause they don't experience it themselves. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of possibilities here from, cause didn't we talk once about trying to create a conference that was just for women or, you know, underrepresented people in tech or something like that. So that they could, we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we should revisit that. Yeah. Uh, Unless yeah, post post pandemic. I think you know. I I don't know. I think uh, this pandemic has taken a toll on all of us, and uh, and and you know, I I'm I'm feeling just quite depleted right now, and I'm hopeful for the post vaccination days. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a year of of pure exhaustion. Mm. So. Well, on I that don't want to end on that note. Yeah, I know but it's Cut true. That. It's true. So. Well, uh, thank you so much, Diane, for yeah. joining us and for your vulnerability and your friendship and your educating me in so many ways over the many years. And, um, it's so good to see you. Hopefully and is this, is this what we have to do in order to catch up? We have to interview you. Apparently, on a- I hope we I hope we just manufacture reasons to talk more frequently because okay. uh, this has been super fun. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.